Cool. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone, and thanks for the welcome and being down here. I'll just adjust this. Ah! That's my magic trick. Um, um, uh, I've been down here a bit, um, and I remember being in this building, what was it, I don't know, 10 years ago when the Bay Church first began. It was fantastic, very cool. Um, All right. Well, we're going to get into that passage in front of you, and uh, I'll be here for the next three weeks too. So um, kind of in a way, if, if, if you're someone who thinks, oh, I do have someone that I'd love to bring maybe to church, but I didn't know what the speaker was like, you know. Now's your chance to suss me out, you know. So, so I hope I do a good job. All right. But anyway, they say that the music that's played when you're 21 defines your generation. Tim, can we have a bit of a bit of the song? In 1991, REM released their top song, Losing My Religion, and that was the year I turned 21, and it topped the charts. No one really knew what it was really about. When you do a Wikipedia search, suddenly you discover that it's about losing your self-control because of unrequited love, and losing my religion is kind of a, a, a phrase from Southern America, nevertheless. No one really knew what it was about, but everyone thought that they did. (laughs) And people took it and they sang it and they owned it for themselves because it seemed to legitimize what they wanted to do, which was abandon religion. It was a song really that defined my generation. And it became our anthem. And then, you know, down the track, you know, we got married or maybe we didn't get married, but we had kids. And actually, our kids, my kids, I've got three, 15, 18, and 21 years old, uh, probably the age of some of you here, you're the children born out of this song, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, It raises a critical question, doesn't it? What does it mean to live a good enough life if you're going to throw your religion in? If you've rejected religion, in the end, what, what counts as good? You know, some people... I guess if you ask them, it's interesting hearing those replies, but some people would say love. Love is the answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's good enough. Or to borrow a song title from the Beatles, Love is All You Need. Um, We're going to tackle that one next week. Today, we're considering another answer that maybe if you've thrown out religious practices, maybe, maybe knowing, knowing, really knowing about God, enlightenment, That's enough. Because I think people, they want to say, I'm rejecting formal religion, but if I know, you know, I can know, I can study these things. Um, That's enough. The test case of this, of course, is Nicodemus, the the guy who we just um, met in that story, true story, read out for us. Of all the religious figures up until then, Nicodemus was the most enlightened one of them all. Now, why do I say that? A couple of reasons. Number one, he's Jewish meaning that he belongs to that nation, that body of people where God personally revealed himself by name. Of all the people in the earth, it was 
it was him, them that um, God personally bonded himself to. And then he went, you know, their history is the documents, the ups and downs of that relationship. But along the way, God consistently speaks to them. And they have these words written down, right? So Nicodemus is a Jew. He knows about God. More than that, he's a leading Jew. He's, he had status. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council um, in charge of things in Jerusalem. So he'd have known the laws of God inside out. More than that, he was elderly. He had the maturity that comes with years, years of thinking about these things. More than that, within the Jews, he had religious pedigree. He was a Pharisee. Now, which doesn't mean he wore a dark cloak and had a maniacal laugh or something like that. The Pharisees, actually, to everyone else, they were the good guys. They were the people who took obedience to God really seriously. They didn't just say they knew about God, they said they believed. They believed the scriptures, um, that they were God's literal words. They believed in life after death. They believed in the resurrection. Uh, They took obedience very, very seriously. And topping all of those other things, Nicodemus was the top Jewish teacher. don't know if you know that. But in verse 10, Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher. Literally, a literal reading of that says, you are the teacher of Israel. So here we have Nicodemus, right, who's possibly the most enlightened religious man, perhaps in the world at that time, what do we see, and what do we see in this conversation with Jesus? Very quickly, it comes out very quickly that knowledge is not enough. You know, sure, he seems open enough. He seeks out Jesus and says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God because no one could perform the mirac- miraculous signs that you're doing if God was not with him. Now, that sounds positive, doesn't it, to our ears? And yet John, John who writes this story down, He says, this enlightened, knowledgeable man, seemingly open to Jesus, comes to Jesus at night. Now, John is a bit like a cabbage here. He has layers, like Shrek, you know, onion boy. A bit like my wife. Not that my wife is like Shrek, or a cabbage or an onion. But there's a surface level Uh, in what sometimes she says, and there's a deeper level. When she says, I can't wait till dinner, meaning she's hungry and she's looking forward to eating, that's one level. But when she locks eyes with me and says, I can't wait till dinner, then there's a deeper level that I've discovered in the wisdom of my years of being married to her, that there's a message being communicated there and I'd better start cooking pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, John is a bit like that, right? He says Nicodemus comes at night, which means, yes, the sun has gone down. But he's saying more. He's commenting on Nicodemus's spiritual condition. If you were to read ahead to the verse after, the one that we finished with, verse 19, darkness is equated with doing what's evil. So here's the test case, right? Possibly the most enlightened religious man, perhaps in the world at that time, the verdict, he's in darkness. Now, how does that darkness show itself? Well, it shows itself in Jesus' immediate slam dunk of Nicodemus straight after his opening, you know, pep words. Um, Nicodemus might have sounded generous and respectful, but Jesus sees what's happening. He sees 
the agenda that Nicodemus has. He sees the cogs turning in Nicodemus's mind. He sees that Nicodemus has come to Jesus. He's evaluated him. He's measured him up, Jesus up according to his predetermined grid to see if Jesus stacks up. He has declared with the authority of the Sanhedrin that Jesus is truly from God as if their verdict actually changes anything. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a moment. What else could Nicodemus do? I mean, we all have our grids, don't we? We all use our systems to evaluate people. But we can't get away from John's comment. Nicodemus, even though he seems so open, so objective, spiritually speaking, he's in darkness. Well, let's, let's just unravel this knot for a moment. By Nicodemus's own admission, he knew about Jesus' miracles. He knew them. More than that, he knew the key to make sense of those miracles because he knew the scriptures, right? He knew them inside out. And they were the key to understand Jesus' miracles, not just to go, wow, but actually to unlock faith. He had everything at his disposal to move from knowledge to faith, but he couldn't. He couldn't do it. With all of his knowledge, Nicodemus, the most knowledgeable religious man around, for all his knowledge, Jesus says in verse 10, you are the teacher of Israel, but you don't even understand what I'm saying. Duh! You know, he doesn't say that, but you know, that's the import. Now, to us, someone like Nicodemus might seem incredibly They may be lovely people, and Jesus perhaps would say that Nicodemus, he really did know more than they did. But he would say they're spiritually blind. Now, is that too harsh? I want you to listen to the blowtorch reply Jesus gives to Nicodemus's nice words. Have a look at verse 3. Jesus declares, he just cuts to the chase. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. Jesus says, knowledge is not enough. You must be born again. He impresses the point, doesn't he? We need to actually be supernaturally reborn. Now, this is more than knowledge, isn't it? This is something altogether different. Why do we need to be supernaturally reborn? Because only someone who's supernaturally reborn has the spirit of God. And you need the Spirit of God to see the kingdom of God. Jesus says it again in verse 5, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit that is born again. Now we might wonder what that means, but the gist is clear enough. He's saying no one is naturally born into the kingdom of God. None of us are. We don't naturally belong there. You might naturally belong in your family, but you don't, and I don't, we don't naturally belong in the kingdom of God. The little baby was born. That baby was not naturally born as a member of the kingdom of God by virtue of their parentage. Uh, none of us are. 
our whole beings are so alien to the kingdom of God, we just won't even see the kingdom of God unless we are supernaturally born again. How do you illustrate this? It's very hard. Um, I was thinking, it's a bit like Neo in the Matrix. Okay, remember that? Here he is. Bing! Okay, there he is. Keanu Reeves, slimy. But before that, he's cool. He's going to nightclubs. He thinks he's alive, but he's kidding himself because in reality, he's an adult embryo, sorry, there we go, in an amniotic sack. He's stockpiled as future food for machines until, you know the story, he swallows that red pill and he gets ripped out of his amniotic womb tomb and he gets reborn and given a new life. This is a powerful illustration of rebirth. Fictitious, yes, not from the Bible, true. But it kind of illustrates the need that Jesus sledgehammers Nicodemus with. Actually, a better description comes for us in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was one of the major prophets uh, of, of God to the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel relayed to the Jewish people the promise of God where, where God describes this rebirth in the same terms that Jesus used of, of water water and the spirit. In Ezekiel, and this is really kind of, I guess, the reference point or the way to understand Jesus' words. In Ezekiel, God promised, the day will come when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. You see? I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. That is what Jesus is talking about in his conversation with Nicodemus, being born again. What does it mean? It means to be cleansed from your sin, washed. It means God replacing your heart, ripping out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh that is a heart that's responsive to God, not calcified against God. It means God putting a new spirit in us, a spirit that comes from him that longs to obey that is what being born again means. And according to Jesus, you can have all the knowledge of God in the world, but without that rebirth from above, not only will we not enter the kingdom of God, we won't even see it. You know, we'll live our lives and this great spiritual reality which God is driving all history towards, we, we won't even see it. It'll pass us by. You know, we'll live our lives, we'll try to make the best meaning of them that we can, but in the end, we're going to die and nothing we will have lived for will endure to eternal life. Everything we have lived for, ourselves included, will perish. You need to be born again. So how do you become born again? How do you become fit for the kingdom of God? How do you get this new spirit, this spiritual cleansing? Well, the first thing to note is you can't make it happen yourself. Um, that's Jesus' point when he speaks about wind blowing. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. I mean, we can see the wind. Well, you can't see the wind, but you can see the, eff the effects, the evidence of the wind, the, the leaves blowing, the dust sort of swirling around. You know wind is real, but you can't make a windstorm just happen by your own efforts. You can't go down there just with a little fan, your leaflet, and do this, and then have this huge wind just blow through Adelaide like that. You just can't do it. Same with the spirit. We know he's real. And sometimes God might reveal himself to you 
maybe before you've become a Christian, there's a moment, a moment in your life. For me, it was when I was a little boy of four. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And I remember the moment, um, only, it's only happened once, when actually I, I heard a voice, which I, I worked out must have been from God. I was at home, I was downstairs, mum was upstairs in the kitchen, and I'd done something wrong, I can't remember what it was, but I heard a voice which said, you know I saw that as well. And that freaked me out. It was a bloke's voice, I went outside, I looked around, no one was in the house. I went upstairs, I said, Mum, is anyone else home? She said, no. Ah. I went back down to my room and I, I just, as a little boy, I worked out that must have been God and I prayed, right? Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, religious family or anything. That happened. I don't know if anything like that's happened to you. Don't freak out if, you, if it hasn't happened. But, you know, there's evidence that the Spirit is real. Um, you meet people who are just full of joy because they speak like God is real in their life. You meet people whose life gets changed radically um, for good when they become a Christian. And you think, this is real. You also know a lot of people who are faking it. But that doesn't rule out the fact that there is something real going on as well. And it's real. Well, well, how do you get it? Well, you can't make it happen by, you know, jumping through religious hoops, saying magic incantations or, you know, spinning prayer wheels around. How do you do it? If we need to be born again, how does it happen? Jesus says, we need the one who comes from heaven to explain to us the cross. That is what we need. That is an unexpected answer. It doesn't make a lot of immediate sense. But at least Jesus, by this stage, halfway through the conversation, has stopped speaking mysteriously and elusively um, of birth and wind and water and spirit, which is all a bit nebulous. Now he's speaking more concretely about the cross and about the certainty of eternal life to everyone who believes. Nicodemus, he had presumed to speak of heavenly things, but Jesus, the Son of God who comes to us from heaven, he really can speak with the authority on heavenly things. And surprise, surprise, when he cuts to the chase and he wants to speak to you about being, about being born again, what does he speak about? He speaks about the cross. Now, we may not immediately understand, but what is what is clear from the flow of the conversation is this is the answer to how someone becomes born again. This is the answer to how someone gets made clean, how someone gains eternal life. It's the answer. The implication is that there is nothing, get this, there is nothing more important to understand than this. You know, of all the things you can get your head around in life, of all the knowledge you're going to gain at uni, of all the things, you know, this is it. This is the most important. Jesus explains three things about the cross. And um, I think I've got two spots on your outline, but really there are three. I can't remember how many I put there. But anyway, first of all, <laughs> uh, well, here they are. People need to look in faith to the Son of Man, the agent of judgment raised up on a pole. Number two, behind this bizarre method of salvation is the deep, deep love of God. 
And number three, unless people believe in the Son crucified for them, they are utterly, utterly lost. Three essential points. Number one, people need to look in faith to the Son of Man, the agent of judgment, raised up on a pole. Now, what is Jesus talking about? <laughs> to explain the cross, Jesus goes, rewinds in Israel's history and tells a story to Nicodemus, which he would have been familiar with, but you may not. It's a classic story of judgment from Israel's history. If you remember back to the Exodus story, right? So remember Disney movie, Moses, Prince of Egypt, right? And remember that um, story, that movie that came out with, um, was it Christian Bale? Was it? I can't remember, on the Exodus. All right. Dramatic rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt, 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. After that, the Israelites wandered as a nation for 40 years in the desert. And during that time, the Israelites very quickly became ungrateful and they forgot what God had done for them. And they developed kind of a national trait as grumblers. It's pretty similar to Australians when you think about it. As a punishment, the Lord sends venomous snakes among them so that many people die. And then the Israelites then beg the Lord to take the snakes away. But instead of immediately answering their prayer, the Lord said to Moses, their leader, Make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten it, bitten can look at it and live. Now, is anyone doing medicine at uni, right? Um, that is the symbol of medicine, you know, a snake on a pole. It comes from this story, okay? So we read that Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole and when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived, It was as simple as that. All you had to do was to believe what God said and then you who were otherwise dead, you, you looked at this very unlikely provision of God and somehow you were saved. You lived. It was totally effective. It made no distinction between those who were deserving and those who weren't, you know, the good Israelites and the bad Israelites. All it took was belief in what God said about this very unlikely, surprising figure raised up high. Now, we think, why the snake? Well, it's not because it was a symbol for Satan. Um, in this story, the bronze snake, of course, symbolizes the live snakes who were the agents of God's judgment. So here the snake on the pole symbolizes the agent of God's judgment in his judgment of sin. You might say the snake is, is kind of like a symbol of God's wrath, his anger against sin. And the puzzle is that when you look at this symbol of God's wrath being poured out, you're saved. How does this explain the cross? Jesus says, please listen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the angel of God's wrath and judgment, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now, Jesus is referring to himself using a title which he used to describe himself in, in his role as the judge of the world on the day, the day of judgment, when he, the Son of Man, will judge every person for what they've ever done with their lives. Jesus said in another place, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a, sep a shepherd separates sheep from his goats. Uh, he'll send people to the right and to the left. 
to eternal life or to eternal punishment is freaking scary moment that Jesus speaks about. But the Son of Man is going to be the one who does it. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert and snakes were the agent of judgment against the Israelites, so the Son of Man, the agent of God's wrath and judgment against us, must be lifted up that everyone who looks to him and believes in him, that is, looks to him in faith, may have eternal life. You become born again by looking in faith at God's agent of judgment lifted up. And we go, what? In one sense, it's totally bizarre because it smacks of an angry God, doesn't it, you think? But then he explains his second point. Behind this bizarre provision stands not God's anger, but his deep, deep, determined love. Jesus says, and this is the most famous verse in the Bible, but it's famous for a good reason. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, God's anger is real. It burns against sin and sinners, but at the same time stands God's immense and deep, deep love for people who would perish. And the enormity of God's love is carried in that little word, so... Um, Nicodemus knew a lot about God. He would have read of God's love. But how could he put together God being angry at sin and God loving? Um, what, when God thought about Nicodemus, what did God think about him? Did God really love him? When you stop in the privacy of your own mind, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep and you think these things and you say, what does God really think of me? Does he just tolerate me? You know, does he just put up with me? Does he, is he pretty chuffed to have me on his team <laughs> or not? Or should he be impressed? Or, what, you know, what does God really, really think of you? Does he like you a bit or not much? Jesus said, God, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We just saw an example of a couple who had their first baby beautiful, a gift from God, so precious. What would make that couple give up their child? You couldn't imagine it, could you? You couldn't imagine anything. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. When God had the Son of Man lifted up on a pole for us to look at and be saved, that son of man, at the same time, was his only son. That agent of judgment was not an image made out of bronze. It was a he. He was a person. God's son. That act of raising up his son on the cross was not a costless intervention. It was a gift. He gave. Gifts are meant to be received, aren't they? But gifts also cost. This was enormous cost. And the motivation, I want you to understand this, behind that gift was not anger, but love. Deep, deep love. A love that was full of grit and tears and determination. An immense sacrifice. God was giving him for us because he loved us. And in this, our sin is not just cleansed, you see. This changes your heart. You get a new heart when you accept this. 
How can you not? Because how could you not want to obey a God of such immense love? Uh, You see that knowledge alone about God is such an inadequate response. Uh, To know now that this happened, which you do know, I mean, you probably knew it before, but I've explained it to you again. To know this and not love God for it, to know that God loves you like this and not see that this is the most centrally important thing that anyone has ever done for you or could do for you, uh, to just think, oh, it's sufficient to know about God. That is so inadequate. So inadequate. Uh, Why did I become a Christian? Uh, I went to a little church. It all began with the axe murder of the lady across the road. I kid you not. Um, I grew up in a little suburb in Sydney where nothing was ever meant to go wrong. Um, we were surrounded by a fair bit of wealth. We lived in a fibre house and had a Datsun 120 y and a Kingswood. We, my dad was in the public service. But nevertheless, it was a nice, safe street. And then one night when I was about 10 years old, the, the guy across the road axe murdered his wife. Not long after that, my, kid, my next door neighbours were kidnapped. And they were taken on a hell ride around Sydney and that they ended up moving, selling a house and moving because they were afraid of the kidnappers coming back for reprisals. Not long after that, the lady three doors down blew her brains out in Hyde Park in Sydney and left her family behind. And this was a little place where nothing was ever meant to go wrong. Well, I was about 10 or 12 by this stage and I thought, you know what, it doesn't add up. You know, if life is about getting a good education so you can get a good job, so you can buy a house in a place like this where nothing ever goes wrong, it's full of holes. And about the same time, another bloke who lived opposite invited me up to the little local church, and it was a good church. When I got there, I found that the people loved me. And that was impressive. I thought, why do you love me? My parents do, but they have to. They're my parents, but you don't know me, and yet you treat me so well. And it intrigued me, and I kept coming back because it was great. And there were girls there, of course, as well, which was another added bonus. But um, over time, over time, and I can't put my finger on the year that it happened, but over time, I remember the penny dropping, and... I remember realizing I had no choice but to become a Christian. You see, if God loved me so much that he gave his son for me so that I wouldn't perish but have eternal life, that is not a gift you walk away from. That is a gift you receive. My mum, who's not a Christian, said, if someone does something for you, you must say thank you. So I blame my mum. I thought the only thing I can do is to say thank you. It's the height of rudeness to walk away from that. And also you'd be a complete idiot. So I thought I have no choice but to become a Christian. So I did. That was difficult, but that's another story. But nevertheless, you see, it changes your heart. This revelation of God's gift to us requires us to trust him with our lives, to say, I trust you, God. I trust that in giving of your son, you love me and you've saved me. And I look to him, I look to him alone because no one has done anything like this for me. No one has given me a gift that I need more than this. And I will not be rude to you and disrespectful of just nodding my head in token appreciation and walking out and doing nothing about it. You can't do that. You've got to say, I believe you love me. I trust your son. I don't just believe things about you now. I believe in you. I stake my life on what you've done. If I was to ask you, what's a metaphor which describes to you what Jesus personally means to you? I wonder what you'd say. 
Um, who is Jesus to you in a metaphor, a word, a picture? Well, here's three for me. He is a massive trampoline net which is stretched over an enormous chasm and I'm falling, falling, and he catches me. He is a waterfall that I go and stand under and get washed by. I've got stuff in my life I'm ashamed of. He washes it away. He is a well I can go and drink from. And my spirit, my soul can be replenished. I wonder what he is for you. I hope he's not a nothing. I hope he's not a little record in a history book. I hope he's more. You see, if you trust in the Son, you have eternal life. You're born again. God will change your heart. That's his goal all all along, that Christ be totally effective as our saviour. Jesus said, God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's what's unique about Christianity. No other religion offers a saviour. None of them. Jesus is completely effective. And that's the third point. The flip side of all this is that unless people believe in the Son crucified for them, there is absolutely no hope for them. That's the third point about the cross. That so unique is God's Son as a saviour, and so effective is he as a saviour, that unless we look to him... We are utterly lost, which is why, lastly, God's only son must be believed in by everyone. He must. You see, what happens if someone doesn't believe in Jesus? Um, There are many good people around, aren't there? I have non-Christian friends, uh, some religious friends. I've met some wonderful people from Iran in the last couple of years who I've grown in friendship. We've had them to our house on Christmas Day. Muslim people, uh, who I've enjoyed their friendship and they've eaten at my house and I've been to theirs. They are good people. But what about them, you know? Well, Nicodemus, take Nicodemus. He was probably a lovely, decent man. It's not okay that they uh, reject Jesus. Um, Now, we might think, hang on, A good person, they're not necessarily rejecting him. They're just not accepting him. They're going to be okay, aren't they? No. Listen to Jesus' words. Jesus doesn't say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all those who are good won't perish. He says, it's so those who believe won't perish. In other words, perishing is not determined by whether we're good or not good, but by whether we believe in God's son or not. And notice the default position in verse 16, for people who do not believe, it's that they will perish. Verse 18 is even more clear. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Here's Jesus saying this. If you you believe in the Son, you're not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Why is it so stark? Because Jesus said he he alone is the saviour of the world. I want you to imagine for a moment that everyone in the world is on... Malaysian flight MH370. And you've crashed in the southern Indian Ocean and people are now bobbing around in the water. And there are good people in the water up there. Okay, there's Mother Teresa bobbing around and, you know, all the good people. And then there's bad people over there. They're bobbing around. There's Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot and they're bobbing. 
Everyone in the world's on this plane, right? It's only a matter of time before everyone sinks and is lost. Jesus says that it's, that's the spiritual condition of everyone in the world. We are perishing. But here's what God does. He sends his son in a rescue helicopter and he's coming over. The spotlight's on. He can see you. He's sticking out his hand and he's saying, grab it. Now, the only difference between those who perish and those who are saved is who grabs the hand or not. It's Jesus' role as a saviour, a totally effective saviour, but the only one on offer. That means that's why you've got to believe in him. It's got nothing to do with where, you know, levels of goodness or not. It's Jesus being an effective saviour and everyone else perishing. What does it mean to live a good enough life? Knowledge alone isn't enough. We must be born again. How does that happen? We can't make it happen. It happens when you believe, when you trust in the words of the one from heaven about the cross. That all you've got to do is look in faith to the Son of Man raised up and we'll be saved, we'll be born again, we'll receive eternal life. Like the Israelites in the desert who looked to that bronze snake and were saved. That's what you've got to do. Behind that action is the deep determined love for you and me despite how we've treated him. And unless we believe, we need to be clear, you'll be, we'll be utterly, utterly lost. We will perish because there is no other saviour. Jesus' message, God's word to you tonight, is that you must put your faith in God the Son, God's one and only Son raised up for you. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus being so clear to a guy who in one way was so impressive in his religiosity, but miles away from the kingdom of God. Father, in our heart of hearts, help us not to be rude by now turning aside from you. Help us to treat you as we must and to place our faith in you. And then we ask that you would help, help us help happen what we cannot achieve for ourselves. Our people would be born again, born from above and given your Holy Spirit and know you and be washed. In Jesus' name, amen.